Let's start with our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We left off on uh, page 66, looking at the sacrificial death of Christ. And it was uh, just, this last, just this last week we covered that first paragraph in some depth and detail. Today we'll, we'll simply fly right by it and get into uh, the meat of this chapter. So, page 66, first a quotation from the Formula of Concord, that's the FC, SD, Solid Declaration, the eighth uh, article, and then um, paragraph 45. For our Christian creed teaches us that the Son of God, who was made man, suffered for us, died, and redeemed us by his blood. Now the text proper. The Augsburg Confession recognized that the death of Christ was not merely an historical event, but was a true vicarious satisfaction for sin. He dies, quote, that he might reconcile the Father to us and be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. And there you see that that is a quotation, end quote, from uh, the Augustana AC, Augsburg Confession, Article 3. And I don't know what's going on there, if that's a typo or what, but it looks like uh, either, or either uh, paragraph 23 or paragraphs 2 through 3. There, um, what, what we're doing here is kind of working backwards from, in, chronologically from the Formula of Concord back to the Augustana and then ultimately back to Scripture. Uh, tracing the roots of, of this foundational teaching. Again, when we're thinking in Christology, we're thinking very simply of the person and work of Christ. There would be the two major divisions. If you're going to talk about the person of Christ, then it's those three points that we've hit over and over again, true God, true man, one person. And then if you're talking about the work of Christ, you're, t- you're going to talk about the vicarious atonement. Um, you can break up the work of Christ into different motifs, if you like, um, Christus Victor motif, uh, substitutionary atonement motif, Christ as example motif, and there, uh, truth be told, there are other motifs as well. Uh, but but the central of those in terms of the teaching of Scripture uh, is is the sacrificial death of Christ. And you're going to see why I say it's the central, because it is it is this one to which the whole Old Testament law points. Um, with, if you consider the law given on Sinai, the heart of the law is the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system. Um, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins that God might dwell with man. That's the center of the whole thing from Moses on. And all of that uh, points as a pedagogue uh, to Christ Jesus and to his all-atoning death and then to our uh, receiving of his body and blood given over into death once and for all on the cross to our receiving of his body and blood on, on his altar in the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of our sins, that the dwelling place of God might be with man, might be with us also um, in, this, in this final 
final step in communion uh, before that eternal step in eternal communion of which we see in Revelation. All right, so that's simply what we're doing here, uh, tracing back. Now, last, last line in that first paragraph on 66, Scare writes, the concept of substitu- substitutionary death explains the assertion of the Nicene Creed that he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. There's a quotation of the creed, and he was crucified not by accident, uh, but for us. So, Formula of Concord, Augsburg Confession, Nicene Creed, and then we're going to go uh, into Scripture. Scare writes, the history of Jesus' death under Pontius Pilate was never an issue in the confessional discussions of the 16th century. That Jesus of Nazareth was actually executed on a Roman cross was simply accepted as historical fact. While mere historical knowledge must never be equated with justifying faith, it is the essential foundation upon which saving faith rests. Any serious incarnational theology is rooted in actual historical events. The Lutheran confessions follow the New Testament in understanding the events of salvation history as real events and not merely as religious intangibles, as was taught by Rudolf Bultmann and the school of demythologizing in the 20th century. So you remember that reference, put a finger there, not going to spend a long time, but you remember that reference from the early chapters, this idea of demythologizing the scripture, taking out all the miracles and all the supernatural things that science and our reason tell us can't happen. Uh, that's that, that project. Um, along with that then goes the, the vicarious death and, and the resurrection of Christ. So we simply, uh, as Lutherans, reject that and ignore that Uh, clinging to what the scriptures themselves teach. Continuing, the phrase crucified under Pontius Pilate mentioned in both the Apostles and Nicene creeds requires belief in the actual participation of God in history through the Incarnation. The one whom the creed confesses as suffering under Pontius Pilate was not simply Jesus of Nazareth, but the true Son of God incarnate. His death under Pilate was seen as a confession that he did actually die and that it happened in ordinary history. The words under Pontius Pilate seem to have evolved out of early creedal language already used by Paul in 1 Timothy 6.13, where Jesus is described as making his confession before Pilate the same one which Timothy had made before many witnesses. Christ's confession before the high priest that he was the Christ, the Son of God, became the center of the early church's faith. So this is a very interesting point, tangential to our discussion of Christology. But when you talk about having or possessing the faith of Christ, what does that mean? And here you can, see, you can see one side of the coin, and whereas the other side we're quite familiar with, that's having faith in Christ. As American Christians, we're, we're very familiar with having faith in Christ, trust in Christ. But the other side is having the faith, faith of Christ, that is the same faith that Christ has. 
Whereas Christ confesses himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. And so to join Christ in his confession is to join him in confessing that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so that, then we share the confession with Jesus. It's not so much a faith in Jesus in this case as it is uh, possessing the same faith as Jesus, possessing the same confession that he confesses. Two sides of the same coin, uh, but worth pointing out. Um, what we also have here is this, this fundamental principle of all Christianity, and that is that Christianity, unlike most other religion and most other religious claims, is uh, falsifiable, and that's a strength that Christ truly died in history, was truly raised from the dead in history, and this is attested to by history's evidence, by eyewitness accounts, by the accounts of hostile witnesses, etc., etc. Um, this grounds Christianity in history and in reality. And so other religions, you know, you can make any claim you want, and there are even claims within Christianity, of course, that are like this. They're not falsifiable. They're not provable in and of themselves. Um, in many respects, they're ahistorical. They take place in heaven or outside of the earthly realm or outside of the realm of our senses uh, or our, our epistemic reach. So uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a very unique thing uh, over and against all other religions that the heart and center of Christianity, the death and resurrection of Jesus, take place in history, are, are public events, and are, are, are public history, and are, are simply part of reality, and are therefore uh, quite falsifiable. I mean, if this was a myth, show us the bones of Jesus, we're done. Uh, this is precisely how Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. So I simply point that out in passing, that uh, this, is, this is an aspect of Christianity to which we should pay attention, and Christianity in general, Christology in specific. All right, so uh, some people have said that those words um, crucified under Pontius Pilate, those three words under Pontius Pilate are the most important words in the creed. I think that might be a little hyperbole, but the point's well taken. The point's well taken is that what passes us by is simply a detail under Pontius Pilate. Who cares about that? Why was that even there? Grounds the whole creed, grounds the coming of the Son of God, the incarnation is being uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, um, and is suffering for us. Uh, grounds all of this in history, in a historical event, um, the cross. All right, uh, over to the top of page 67 then, we'll continue with Dr. Scare. Luke places the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist under the administration of Pilate. There's a reference to Luke 3.1. Confessional theology understands that justifying faith is not merely a knowledge of historical facts. Uh, Dr. Scare said this twice. Why? Usually the oft-cited verse is from James. Even the demons believe and tremble. That is to say, the demons know that Jesus is the Christ. The demons have this knowledge of who God is and what God has done. Um, but that's not salvific for them. Simply having the knowledge of these events isn't salvific. There's no, uh, I mean, in the first place, to sidestep the question as to whether or not there's any salvation for the demons, to which the, the answer is no. Um, 
there's no trust on the part of demons. There's no love or affection for God on, a, on account of his love and affection for us through Christ and him crucified. And so um, this is often set up then as a simply knowledge of the facts is, does not constitute saving faith. Saving faith grasps hold of these facts and, and trusts and trusts oneself uh, to God, to Christ. All right, so thus Scare keeps bringing up um, the fact that justifying faith is not merely a knowledge of historical facts. The faith which justifies, Scare continues, is predicated on actual historical events which give reason and meaning for confident trust in the one who lived, died, and rose again for us men and for our salvation, quoting the creed. Without their association with the actual history of the world, the events of God's saving activity have no meaning. Dogmatic theology acknowledges that God is working in all history, but singles out the history of Israel, Jesus, and the church as that special history of his salvific involvement in world history. Only through the ministry of the church does God create and sustain justifying faith. And we can, you can put a finger there at that uh, footnote and drop down to the bottom where we'll uh, get a quotation here from the Apology to the uh, Augsburg Confession, um, the defense of the Augsburg Confession. Here quoted, We are not dreaming about some platonic republic, as has been slanderously alleged, but we teach that this church actually exists, made up of true believers and righteous men, scattered throughout the world, and we add its marks, the pure teaching of the gospel and the sacraments. This church is properly called the pillar of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, for it retains the pure gospel and what Paul calls the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.12, that is the true knowledge of Christ and faith. So this confession made over and against the Roman Catholic Church, which says, look, we're the, we're the, we the, excuse me, let me try to get this out. We, the visible church, we, the church of Rome, are the church. Outside of our visible communion, there is no salvation. To which the Lutherans re- responded, okay, well, what about all of those in the East? Uh, no, that can't be true. Uh, the church is not defined by your uh, nameplate that you put outside your Roman Catholic parish. Uh, the church is wherever there is true faith. That's viewing it from the, from the side of, of what constitutes the members of the church, um, if you will, from a, from a bottom-up kind of way of looking at it. Um, the church are all of those who believe in Christ Jesus. And then what makes it in terms of, of the other direction, a top-down, if you will, um, is the proper, the proper gospel, the, the right gospel, and the administration of the sacraments. So where those two things are, their faith is created. So where, you know, again, where, where Christ is, there his church is. Where the word and sacraments of Christ are, there they are creating faith in Christians. So those are the dynamics then being, uh, being laid out here by the apology and, and by scare by way of uh, the footnote. So... Uh, 
thus he says or writes, only through the ministry of the church does God create and sustain justifying faith. Pilate is included, Scare continues, in the creed, not because creedal theology and history are identical, but because creedal theology cannot be divorced from history. The theological truth of Christ's sacrificial death for sins is not a truth attained by human reason, but it is predicated on the actual historical events of Christ's death. Paul identifies the death of Jesus for sins as the fundamental article of the faith. I, uh, I mourned and lamented a bit last week about radical Lutheranism and the rejection of this teaching, um, the vicarious satisfaction, and the great harm that that does to the work of Christ and how it really presents, it guts the true gospel. It's a rejection of the true gospel, and it's a putting in place of the true gospel, a false one, a forgiveness by fiat, um, which is just simply permissiveness then. But here then, here then is, it bears repeating, Paul identifies the death of Jesus for sins as the fundamental article of the faith. So if we, uh, you know, if we as LCMS Lutherans cannot, uh, you know, cannot agree with others that the death of Jesus for sins as, is the fundamental article of the faith, then we have no business being in fellowship with one another. We have no business partnering with each other in terms of sharing this gospel. What gospel? We have two different gospels. One person's gospel is Jesus did not die on the cross for your sins, and the other person's gospel is Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. Those are complete opposites. They're mutually exclusive. They're light and darkness. And so you can't just simply partner. Those two groups can't partner together without either being completely deceived themselves and or knowingly deceiving others. So again, uh, now Scare is going to get to the point um, where Paul makes this very confession that the death of Jesus for sins is the fundamental article of the faith. Here quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15 just a moment ago. Here's verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 The Scriptures that Paul has in view here are the Old Testament Scriptures. So it's the Old Testament Scriptures that speak of Christ's death uh, and His dying for our sins. And here Paul repeats that then and puts it forward as a matter of first importance such that if you don't agree with this, if you don't believe in this, in what sense do you agree with or believe in the gospel? Scare continues, the understanding that Jesus died for sins, which was assumed into the church's normative creeds, originated in Jesus' own preaching. After Peter's confession, Jesus describes his mission as requiring his going to Jerusalem, suffering, dying, and rising again. Quotations of the, or I mean references to the Gospels here given 
a phrase repeated in different forms in other places, more gospel references given, in the first instance, Jesus expresses the necessity of his death with the Greek word day, meaning that it has been devised by God and no alternative is allowable. The word day appears again in Matthew 26, 54 in connection with the scriptures, the Old Testament, as the expression of the unchangeable will of God for the Messiah. Um, in the, yeah, I don't know. That's probably sufficient. Let's stop, the, let's stop there just so I can get a word in edgewise here. Um, so look, Jesus himself says it is necessary that he die. What's, the, what's one of the foundational features of radical Lutheranism today, uh, Gerhard Ferdi and Stephen Paulson, that it is not necessary for Jesus to die, that it is a historical accident, that it doesn't matter whether he died or not. And Jesus' own words contradict that in, in precisely one word, day. It is necessary. Okay. So what have we done so far? Not, not to lose the forest for the trees, but we've defined, we've defined Lutheranism's position on this as well as Christianity's position on this. Not that those two things are different, but you understand what I'm saying. We have the formula of Concord that asserts this. We have the Augustana that asserts this. Um, we have the Nicene Creed that asserts this. We have Paul that asserts this. We have Jesus that asserts this. And Scare's going to pour out for us even more abundant evidence from, from the mouth of Jesus regarding these things. This is so fundamental and so foundational. You really cannot be a Christian or be considered a Christian uh, without confession of this article. I mean, again, judgment's in God's hands. But insofar as it goes, we can make this pronouncement uh, just by the simple fact of itself. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? When Paul tells, G or excuse me, when Peter says to Jesus, uh, eh, it's not necessary for you to go to the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and so too, to all of those who are you know, creating these theories of it's not necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. They ought to be told very plainly and bluntly by all who are biblically literate, uh, get behind us, Satan. Uh, that, is not, that is not true. So here, uh, then we've, we've really laid a beautiful foundation, or Dr. Scare has laid it for us. Let's just simply pick back up with reflecting on Jesus' words. So we're at the very bottom of page 67, about five lines up from the bottom. In the post-resurrection appearance to the Emmaus disciples, Jesus uses it to explain how God's requirements for the Messiah have been set down in Moses and the prophets, reference to Luke 24, 26. The necessity that he fulfilled the Old Testament is understood by Christ to be as important after his resurrection as it was before his death, Luke 24, 44 through 46. Thus, the necessity of death for the Christ does not originate within ordinary history, um, which is to say Jesus isn't a, vi a victim of historical circumstances. Uh, this is, wasn't an accident, nor was it unnecessary. 
Skier continues, not even with Jesus, uh, but is understood by him as God's will for him set down in the Old Testament. Okay, so the origin isn't even in Jesus, the word made flesh, the incarnate one. The origin isn't even there. The origin is prior to the incarnation in the words of the Old Testament. It is necessary. Scare continues, the death of Jesus happens neither by chance nor according to the general providence of God, which directs all history, but is a special act of God's will in history by and through which he is establishing something new for the world. Matthew quotes Zechariah 13, 7. I will strike the shepherd. Okay, so here you have Old Testament prophecy as to what must happen. And then you have Matthew picking it up and saying, it happened. So Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd, making God the ultimate cause of of the death of Jesus. So again, here's, here's the problem with those who deny the atonement. Jesus' death on the cross was accidental. Uh, Most of them reject this idea that God would ever be the one to be putting Jesus to death. In fact, there's just, like, Ferdy's so vitriolic against this. It's it's really off-putting. But it's particularly off-putting when you see how he he is in complete and total contradiction uh, with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit pens in Zechariah 13, I, namely God speaking, not Pilate speaking, I, God, will strike the shepherd. And as Scare rightly notes, making God the ultimate cause of the death of Jesus. Even more clearly, Scare brings up Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant in the hands of God. He is, quote, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. End quote. That's Isaiah 53, 4. And it was the Lord's will to bruise him. Isaiah 53, 10. And I don't know if Scare does this later, but I might just interject here. God, Isaiah says, laid on him the iniquity of us all. So to confess that Christ isn't bearing our iniquity is to contradict God and the scriptures. And to see as repulsive this idea that God strikes the shepherd or that God smites the the suffering servant is to reject the scriptures and to reject the spirit. It's to reject the very heart of the gospel itself. It's a profoundest act of apostasy and arrogance. Scare continues, establishing God as the ultimate cause of Christ's death does not excuse those who participated in the historical cause of his death. Judas is guilty of having betrayed innocent blood, Matthew 27, 4, and Peter holds his listeners responsible for their act, Acts chapters 2 and 3. Pilate cannot really clear himself of responsibility, and the Jews acknowledge theirs, Matthew 27. Allocating historical responsibility for the criminal deed 
does not serve dogmatic purposes since dogmatics is interested not only in the death of Jesus as historical event, but also in its meaning as a substitutionary death for sins, something which can only be known by special revelation. And here, what scare means in, the, in our dogmatic tradition is scripture, the very point he's taken pains to prove from Jesus' own lips, from Zechariah 13 and Isaiah 53. The substitutionary death for sins is made known to us by special revelation, namely by the scriptures. The question of the historical cause of Jesus' death, which is of some concern to modern Jews, especially those associated with the state of Israel, who may unjustly feel the historical burden of that death, serves no dogmatic purpose at all. The Gentiles are just as culpable as are the Jews, according to the New Testament record, reference to Matthew 20, 19. It is more important to see all men Jew and Gentile as responsible for the death of Christ and included in his salvation. Right, so the point isn't to find fault with Pilate in specific or uh, with Caiaphas in specific, with the Gentiles or the Jews in specific. That's never the point. The point of the cross preached in scripture and dogmatically is that all of us on account of our sins are the ones who put Christ to death and that what we mean for evil in our sinning, uh, he means for good by taking those sins upon himself and redeeming them and redeeming us, transforming our evil and our deicide into, uh, into the greatest good and into our deification. So our deicide he transforms into our deification. That's an, it's just an incredible and marvelous thing. It's unbelievable. It's all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, and to deny this is to gut Christianity and to invent a different Christianity, to invent a different religion. It's really, frankly, to, to reinvent Allah, a God who just simply forgives by fiat. That's Allah. Allah's merciful. So is the God of the radical Lutherans, um, but there's no necessity of the cross in Islam. In fact, it's rejected. There's no necessity of the cross in radical Lutheranism. In fact, it's rejected. So this ought to be quite sobering to us. And just consider, if you're going to follow the radical Lutherans, just consider what scriptures you're going to leave in the dust and trample under your feet and how it is you'll answer for that. All right, so as Scare points out, we're not interested so much in the historical causes the, because the theological causes are, again, revealed to us in the scriptures of, of our God, uh, tell us quite plainly that we are all, that he is crucified for all of us, that is on account of all of us, and for all of us, that is, uh, for the benefit of all of us. Scare continues, page 68, the word for sacrifice Hostia. Here's a little bit of insider baseball for us as Lutherans, and, I, and it's a good reminder. So, anyone who's served on one of our altar guilds or perhaps is one of our elders, maybe even an usher, um, will know that from time to time we refer to the consecrated bread, uh, 
that bread which our Lord's words of institution, take, eat, this my body, etc., have been spoken over, that consecrated bread, we refer to it as the host. Now, somehow, this strange meaning has gotten slipped in there as if, like, it's the host the way your body might be the host to a parasite. That is not at all what we are saying. It is not the bread that is the host of the body, and the body becomes part of the bread as a, as a parasite, for crying out loud, no. What does it mean, then, when we refer to that as the host? It's short for hostia, the sacrifice. That's what we're saying. We're saying that this is the host. We're saying this is the sacrifice. That is the sacrifice that Christ made once and for all on the cross, wherein he sacrificed his body and blood. It is this very same sacrifice that he gives Christians to eat and to drink. And so in receiving that, we are receiving the sacrifice. We are receiving the hostia or host. So a bit of insider baseball, but that's where that language comes from. That's what it means. We do well not to forget it, lest we come up with some kind of bizarre pseudoscientific uh, definition of the, the presence of Christ. All right. The word for sacrifice, Scare continues, hostia, used of the sacrifice of Christ as victim, is located by the Augsburg Confession in the historical death of Jesus. Reference to Article 3, Paragraph 3 of the um, Augsburg Confession. The concept of Christ's death as a propitiatory sacrifice. We talked last week about the connection between the English phrase, the English word atonement and the word, the translated word propitiation. We talked about the really, the, in many respects, the interchangeability between those two words. So that if you do run across someone who says, well, I don't see atonement in my Bible, uh, okay, do you see propitiation? Because it's the, same, it's the same principle. The concept of Christ's death as a propitiatory sacrifice referred to at times as the Anselmic theory of the atonement has been common to both Lutheran and Roman Catholic understandings of Christ's death. According to this view, the death of Christ is placed in the balance on one side and all of fallen humanity on the other. Christ's death as an exchange for man's death is the payment for sins. Um, Take a, look at the, uh, take a look at the footnote here. Much of contemporary Lutheranism has surrendered the biblical and confessional data as a result of higher criticism. So where does, on, on what does radical Lutheranism found itself? On higher criticism. And that's true. You can look at, you can look at Ferdy's doctrine of, the, uh, of Scripture, or you can... Or you can look at how a guy like Paulson actually treats Scripture. So much of contemporary Lutheranism has surrendered the biblical and confessional data as a result of higher criticism. A dramatic example is found in Broughton, Dogmatics. This is an ELCA theologian, ELCA dogmatician. Here quoting Broughton, Jesus himself, though he might have and quite possibly did reckon with a violent death at the hands of his adversaries. Look at this. Might have? 
Friends, welcome to the ELCA. Jesus himself, though he might have and quite possibly did reckon with a violent death at the hands of his adversaries, seems not to have understood or interpreted his own death as a sacrifice for others or ransom for sin. Such interpretation apparently came as a result of later reflection. Thus far brought. This is why Lutheranism gets you down, <laughs> as Dr. Scare would say. <laughs> oh, where to begin? What darkness? What satanic blindness? That Jesus didn't even know, nor did Jesus interpret his own death as a sacrifice for sins. Okay, well, in order to do this, you have, to, you have to have zero understanding of the Lord's Supper then. Because on the night in which he's betrayed, in Jewish reckoning, evening and morning the first day, Jewish reckoning, the Lord's Supper is celebrated the same day as the cross. The, the fact that Jesus takes bread and takes body, we've mentioned this before, you know, why not just take bread and say, this is me? The fact that he takes bread as a separate thing and, 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 then, and says, this is my body, it takes the wine as a separate thing, so this cup is my blood. The fact that the body and the blood are separated is obvious to everyone but apparently 20th century Lutherans that this is a sacrifice. The body and the blood have been parted. If you go back and look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, this is exactly the language of sacrifice. And Jesus is doing this the very day that he gives his body and blood on the cross as an offering for sin. So, he's, so he gives them to us to eat and drink for the forgiveness of sin, as he says. To assert that Jesus doesn't understand his cross as a sacrifice has got to be some of the greatest blindness uh, a, Lutheran the uh, a Lutheran theologian could ever suffer from. Okay, well, so as you can see, Ferdy and Paulson aren't alone in the ELCA. They're right at home in the ELCA. Back up to Scare. Uh, looks like the second line from the top of 69. Pieper describes it this way. The term vicarious satisfaction reproduces the teaching of Scripture that through Christ's substitutional obedience and death, God's wrath against men was appeased. In other words, his judgment of condemnation was set aside. So, what, what's scarce showing is that the Anselmic theory, quote-unquote, is, is what it's called. And this language of theory, you have to understand, is pejorative. I mean, we talk about the, in Christendom, we talk about the theory of evolution. We talk about theories as things that aren't certain or can't be known in some respects. We use that language. Um, 
cannot be demonstrated. And so to call something a theory, a theory of the atonement, is already uh, pejorative and an insertion of, uh, of language that is not objective. So recognizing that when someone's talking about the theories of atonement, and here's the problem, ready? The, Bibli- the Bible presents at least three, this is, okay, this is how it goes. The Bible presents at least three major theories of the atonement. And there are also additional per, uh, per, um, peripheral, excuse me, peripheral uh, theories of the atonement. Okay. So you've got all these theories of atonement, but what you've got is like it's like a donut. It's like it's like you've got a whole donut going around, and you say, okay, well, what's the thing in the middle? What is the atonement? And there's crickets. There's literally nothing, because you've just got all these theories. You see. Well, what's the thing itself? There's no, there's no answer to that. I, this is precisely the problem when you insert these categories as we have in this category of theory. Um, it's where motif is a much better way of speaking and a much less pejorative way of speaking. Uh, and there's other language that's equally good. But what motif does is it allows you to say, no, I'm looking at the thing itself. I'm, so so you, it's, like the, it's like the proverbial, uh, you know, the, the three men in a pit. I don't know if they're blind or if it's just dark in the pit, and they're all feeling and describing different parts of the elephant. I mean, they're at least feeling and describing different parts of the, of the elephant. And, uh, or you might use the, the analogy of a diamond. It's like, well, I'm looking at this side and this facet, and, it, and it's reflecting these colors. And somebody's looking at, an, at another theory and facet. When you've got nothing but theory, you've got nothing but conjecture. You don't know the thing itself. You're not even handling the thing itself. When you've got motif, you're at least making the confession that, no, I'm handling the thing. Um, This is what the thing is. And it may be this, and it may be another thing. It may have another facet or another side or another feature. That's well and good. But that that is a very... We have to be very, very careful of that. Otherwise, you end up... um, you frankly end up in the same conundrum that evangelicals run in when they say, um, you know, they, they say, well, they deny the body and blood of Christ. Well, that's symbolic. And usually their argument is, Jesus said he is the door. He's not really a door, is he? And it's like, okay, go further. John says he's the Lamb of God. Is he the Lamb of God? Does he have four legs and fur? Okay, go further. And pretty soon what you're going to find is you actually have nothing to confess. You have nothing that isn't analogy, nothing that isn't metaphor. And so in the most satanic possible way, you got all of the literal meaning from the text and all of the true meaning um, of God's revelation. You got it all and make it as if, as if God can't speak to human beings. God who knows all things and can do all things can't communicate truth to human beings, which has disastrous effects on one's entire theological paradigm and program. I mean, frankly, if you really hold to that, in what sense can you be a Christian? You're an agnostic. You're a complete agnostic. And you can't be any other. In fact, you say that that's the height of piety, to be just this. Well, this is all disastrous. So we as Lutherans do very well to flush out from our systems this pejorative language of theory and use other language, whether it's motif, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Uh, But understand that Um, We are describing the thing as it is. And 
One of those is this anselmic motif described by Scare here as Christ's death, uh, you know, as on, on sort of one scale um, over and against the, you know, the, the sin and death of man and the sin and death of Christ, just depending on how you balance that. Um, that is to say, his bearing our sin. Um, that's, uh, that's an anselmic motif. And there's nothing wrong with that motif. There's nothing wrong with it. So Christ's death as a propitiation or a propitiatory sacrifice is referred to at times as the Anselmic theory. Both Lutherans and Roman Catholics hold this. According to this view, the death of Christ is placed in the balance on one side and all of fallen humanity on the other. So you know, think of all fallen humanity and all their sins. Okay? And then in order to be placed on the scale, you have to be human, right? so Christ is incarnate. And then in order to uh, actually be effective in terms of the salvation of the entire human race, billions of people, you have to be God. So you have then God in the balance and man in the balance, true God, true man, one person, and thus you have the atonement. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And so then you have Pieper's description, Pieper, this 20th century Lutheran dogmatician, the term vicarious satisfaction reproduces the teaching of Scripture. So again, this just comes out of Scripture, the principles come right out of Scripture. Um, Through Christ's substitutional obedience and death, God's wrath against man was appeased. Now we'll talk about this in more detail in the pages to come, the difference between active and passive obedience. But just notice this, that it's Christ's substitutional obedience, Christ fulfilling the law and doing the Father's will perfectly uh, for us. That's part of uh, the vicarious atonement, that his substitutional obedience um, and death, that is death in our place for us that we might live. Okay. And in these things, God, God's wrath against men, which, listen, if, if wrath gives you, a, you know, gives you heartburn, because apparently there was something in the 70s that any time everybody, or the 60s, I can't recall, um, I wasn't born yet, but anytime someone talks about wrath, God's wrath, you break out in hives, then, then just do yourself a favor and, and, and put in place of wrath justice. Justice. That's the same concept. Um, he is justly angry. He's justly wrathful. His wrath is just. So you can place justice there and do nothing wrong at all. I mean, we don't get this idea that God is like has a temperament problem or um, is just is angry all the time. No, he's just. Okay, so. Um, by his substitutional obedience and death, God's wrath against men was appeased. In other words, his judgment of condemnation was set aside. It was taken from off of us and put on Christ. There's a, a bit more of a specific um, articulation of what is sometimes called the Anselmic theory. Scare continues, the most detailed discussion of Christ's death as sacrifice is found in the Apologies, Refutation, of the Roman view of the Mass as propitiatory sacrifice. 
In other words, 16th century Roman Catholicism, and it continues, of course, uh, this idea that by sacrificing, by the representation of Christ's body and blood, we are making a propitiatory sacrifice, to which the Lutherans said, where is that in the Bible? The propitiatory sacrifice is made once and for all by Christ on the cross, and then that is distributed for us Christians to eat and drink for the forgiveness of our sins. Where does it ever say that we are called to take this this body and blood that Christ has given us and return it to God in, a, in some sort of representation of his sacrifice in a way that is temporally a propitiation of sins. It's just nowhere in the scripture. So there's a rejection of this. But in the rejection of this, there's an articulation of what Christ's death as sacrifice is. Now, important to note that this is in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession is the foundation of Lutheranism. It's the foundation of the Lutheran, it's really the foundation of the Western Church because Roman Catholicism is invented as soon as they reject the scriptures and the church fathers that Lutheranism holds to. And Roman Catholicism becomes a denomination in the 16th century and the true Western Church continues with the Lutherans and with the Augustana, with the Augsburg Confession and the defense of that document. So when, when the apology uh, asserts the anselmic theory, the vicarious atonement, um, the substitutional obedience and death of Christ, you have to understand that, the, that to reject that is not just to reject Lutheranism, it's to reject the Western Church. It's to reject the entire, in what sense can you be called a Lutheranism and reject the heart of Lutheranism? In what sense can you count yourself a Western Christian and reject the heart of Western, Western Christendom? I mean, truly, that you, you become a sect unto yourself in denying the vicarious atonement. So we do no favor in reckoning those who deny the vicarious atonement as Lutherans. They certainly aren't. We do ourselves no favor in reckoning. <laughs> a more egregious lie than that would be to call them confessional Lutherans. They deny every single confessional document and what they hold and the heart of it. In what sense are they confessional Lutherans? So these are abominable lies that are told by Lutherans who actually hold to the vicarious atonement, but don't hold their friends to this, and so continue to promote um, their theology and promote them as Lutherans and confessional Lutherans in really the most egregious dishonesty uh, one can observe in the Lutheran church today, and that's saying a lot. <laughs> that's saying a lot. What a, tragic, what a tragic time we live in. All right, so picking back up with Scare, after that, uh, in, the, in the main text, but after the footnote four, the most detailed discussion of Christ's death as sacrifice is found in the Apologies' refutation of the Roman view of the Mass as propitiatory sacrifice. Now quoting, Since the beginning of the world, all the saints have had to believe that Christ would be the offering and sacrifice for sin. As Isaiah 53.10 teaches, when he makes himself an offering for sin. End quote. We actually get two pretty large birds with this one stone. Since the beginning of the world, all the saints... That means Old Testament and New Testament have confessed the vicarious satisfaction. 
have attest, have confessed that Christ makes himself an offering for sin, as Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. pens. So since the beginning of the world, all the saints have had to believe that Christ would be the offering and sacrifice for sins. So to deny this, here's the first bird, to deny this is to deny the apology, to, to cease to be a confessional Lutheran. And then the second and obvious point that we're making here is that uh, Christ is, in fact, the offering and sacrifice for sin. And to deny that is to deny the faith not just of Lutherans, not just of Christians, but of all saints, Old Testament saints included. It is to utterly put oneself outside of the household of God. As Isaiah 53.10 teaches, when he makes himself an offering for sin. And that quotation is from the Apology, the Defense of the Augsburg Confession, Article 24, paragraph 59. Scare continues, the issue between Lutherans and Roman Catholics was never if Christ was the sacrifice for sins. See, that's been entirely held in the Western tradition. Christ is the sacrifice for sins. So, the issue is never if Christ was a sacrifice for sins, but, Scare writes, where and when this sacrifice was most properly to be located, in the Mass or the historical death of Christ. Romans say the Mass, the true Catholics and Lutherans say the historical death of Christ. Scare continues, the scriptural concept of a completed righteousness to be appropriated by the sinner through faith demands that the sacrifice be seen as complete in the death of Christ or in the death of Jesus. Because the sacrificial or enzelmic understanding of Christ's death has been frequently challenged since the Reformation in much of Protestant thought, biblical support for it must be offered. All right. Um, well, truth be told, we've already given biblical support because we have Anselm. I forget Anselm's dates right off the top of my head. I'm a, I apologize. I should have put that in. He, he's like 12th or 13th century, somewhere in there, I believe. And if I'm off by a bit, I apologize. But he's right around in there. Um, Lutherans, of course, you're talking the 16th century. Uh, so that gives you a little bit of a chrono chronological understanding there of, of Anselm and, and the Lutherans. Um, and you can see that Anselm is by no means uh, derided by the Western church at that time. Um, so what he's saying is, is thoroughly and properly understood to be correct by all in the West. And the Lutherans simply continue with that. Um, but what we've done now is we've we've looking at uh, we excuse me we've taken a look at our confessional statements, uh, Anselm's theory in particular, Lutheran statements that agree with that from our foremost 20th century dogmatician Francis Pieper, and then also going back to the Apology to the original confessional documents, and then we've seen a root of all of that in Isaiah 53:10. When he, capital H, he makes, capital H, himself an offering for sin. So there's your scriptural foundation. Now, if we had that and that alone, that would be sufficient. Um, but what we're going to do with Dr. Scare next week, beginning at page uh, 69, we will go through a scriptural foundation, foundation for the sacrificial atonement for sins. 
The Lord be with you.